HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Josh Green. We'll look back at the year in wine 2022, our annual review. We'll taste a few wines that define the year during the show and for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Josh Green is the longtime editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. Josh has traveled extensively to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Portugal, Italy, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. He is a critic for those regions and South Africa, along with writing feature stories and commentary for the magazine. Wine and Spirits also presents their Top 100 Tasting annually, now in New York and San Francisco. And Josh and his team evaluate over 15,000 bottles of wine every year. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Josh. Thanks so much, Sam. Um, It's always a pleasure to uh, look back at the year in wine with you. As I mentioned off-air, this is our seventh annual end-of-the-year review of wine, and even during COVID, as you asked me, we didn't miss a beat. We did it remotely, Um, and that also puts you as the all-time most appearances on the Grape Nation, seven. Fantastic. So you're in that mini (laughs) Grape Nation Hall of Fame. Um, So welcome back, and as always, I'm excited to see you even more in person and to sit down and talk with you. All right, as I mentioned, before we get started and take a look at the past year through the lens, um, the stories through the lens of specific wines, um, you know, we could do this quickly. Tell me about 
some other stories or wines that seem to have been covered by the magazine or important um, in addition to what we're going to get into. In addition to what we're talking about here, um, we always cover champagne, which is in the current issue. And um, that to me is one of the most exciting regions in the world right now because certain regions really are struggling with climate change and champagne for the moment, other than really being troubled by early bud break and, and challenges with frost and things like that, for the moment, it's been really fantastic for the region's wines. And especially for Coteau Champenoise, I was going to bring you a Coteau Champenoise and I thought, well, let's mix it up a little bit. And so I brought you a sparkling wine from the States instead. When you say let's mix it up, is that because you remember you brought one a couple of years yes, ago? exactly. Okay. Which yes. was a treat because... It's not a common, yeah. and this is a different know, one. That, this is a different one that I thought was really interesting that showed really beautifully this year. So it's not a common wine, but it will. I don't think it'll ever become a common wine because people are not making a lot of it, but a lot more people are are focusing on right. still wines and champagne, and they are able to get ripeness in a way that they weren't before. So you're seeing a lot less dosage in the wines, in the sparkling wines, and you're seeing a lot more still wines coming out that are beautiful. So champagne definitely is in that discussion with climate change. Separate of that, the popularity, I mean, you just see it on restaurant wine lists, not three or four, but two or three pages. Mm -hmm. um, I think people are starting to drink it beyond celebratory. I mean, is that all accurate? I don't know how much people are starting to drink it beyond celebratory. Okay. I think people in trade certainly do. I certainly mm -hmm. do. I, I mean, I drink it for dinner you know, with dinner a lot um, when I can. I love champagne. Um, and I think it's an amazing food wine. But I don't know that many wine drinkers are yet convinced to just open a bottle of champagne rather than a bottle of still wine yet. Now, why do you say that? I, I mean, you're the guy. I mean, you publish a magazine. Is that just from talking to people or sales or sensing it? Because I, I don't hear. disagree with... Okay. It's what I hear from So it hasn't from, proliferated you know. yet. <laughs> It's something that people have been trying to, people have been trying to break away from the celebratory um, meme about champagne for years and years and years. And yet, and yet on the same, at the same time, it's really valuable to champagne that it has that cachet right. for celebrations. So I don't think people want to give it up, but they also want a different, they, they also aren't, they don't have that much wine to sell right now. So oh, really? yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, I'll go out to dinner and everybody will look to me to bring wine because, mm -hmm. you know, I do podcasts, have a little cellar. And I used to bring a white and a red just to make everyone happy. I kind of put that white back on the shelf and bring a champagne and a red. Mm -hmm. And everyone... I'm there. Because right, be when you go out to eat, a lot of times you're eating fish or something light as the appetizer of the first course. And champagne goes great with it. Mm -hmm. So we encourage that. All right. So champagne... Anything else? Give me one other thing that the magazine over and over. Um, we've been paying a lot of attention to Willamette um, and to parts of Oregon toward the coast and sort of looking at what's happening in Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, actually, um, in Willamette and to the west of Willamette. So, so I'm always interested in the process. 
What triggers that? Is it because you haven't gotten it to yet or there's so many things going on that it's interesting to cover and that's what you want to discuss? It's because we see changes occurring. Um, and there's also a, um, there's really great land west of Willamette in the mountains. And there's also a very strong push to maintain it as non-vineyard land, as, as open space. So um, it's an interesting battle. It's an interesting philosophical problem. Um, and there's beautiful wine that's coming out of the vineyards that are planted there. Are the wine people, the people instrumental in keeping that open land open or other? No, no, there are other people instrumental in keeping it open. And it's also a lot of its own by- wineries out. A lot of its owned by forestry companies. Okay. Um, but there's also, there are the forestry interests. There are the people that are trying to maintain it as open space. And then there are the people who would like to plant vineyards there. Um, and so there's sort of like a, a three-way discussion. Yeah. Discussion would be a nice way of saying yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I think Napa went through something like that mm -hmm. a while ago. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things your magazine covers is restaurants, restaurant polls, talking mm -hmm. to people, the pulse of what's going on. Um, I've had three guests on in the last month and a half mm -hmm. that have opened new restaurants and gotten three stars. Wow. <laughs> you know, so I have a pretty, I'm pretty good luck charm here. Mm -hmm. um, is there a resurgence of hospitality? Are we near pre-pandemic? I mean, what's, what's your feeling on that? Cause you're always talking to these, you know, people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we're back to what the normal was before, because I think there was so much disruption in the industry. That said, people are going out to eat and they're, they're going out to eat. They're not masked. They're just, they're just happy, happy to be out in a restaurant. So I think that there is a lot of activity in the popular restaurants. There've been a lot of people looking for space um, there, I find it, I find that it's from, from an outside perspective, I find it's a very, um, there, there's a lot of churn going on at the moment as it gets back to a normal pace. Right. And I, I don't so know enough spinning. It's yeah, not, I don't know enough to say whether it's where it was before. I don't, I don't see the actual numbers of what the restaurants are doing and I'm not sure what those measurements are right now. But, but like me, you see places opening. See a lot Some of places interesting opening. places. Which and is, I've seen a lot of places close. Yeah. So that that story is not as big as, you know, the fanfare of the openings. Yeah, and, and people who were big in the industry have left the industry. So it's an interesting time to try to assess who is who is going to be the big who are going to be the big players in the years to come. Because it'll be a different group of people. And I think the idea of four or five psalms on the floor at a restaurant, it's not the deal anymore. Um, it will depend on the model, I think. On the I restaurant don't know model. if that model, you know, can sustain. I mean, we certainly find that the people doing the wine buying have less time to do anything at the moment than they ever did. Right. So, um, yeah. So that would force, mm -hmm. you know, some support. Um, staying with that, tell me what you know about 
consumption and demographics. Um, is consumption of wine spirits up? Is it we're obviously hearing, going younger? Or yeah, we're hearing a lot of news reports about wine in restaurants moving toward cocktails in restaurants, and that um, younger drinkers are gravitating to cocktails in a big way. Um, still drinking wine, but drinking wine as an occasion of sorts and drinking cocktails as a different occasion. So again, I don't have, I don't keep track of the numbers, right. but, but I, th that's a, there's a sense. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there are also reports on it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So more, I, yeah. I meant more than a sense. Mm -hmm. There's, we don't have specific data, but mm -hmm. um, that's definitely the direction. Is that, that was part of my second question. Is that because the consumer is a little younger and that's what they want? I mean, wouldn't the old Wall that, Street wine guy continue to? I don't know that it has to do with younger versus older. I think it has to do with <clears throat> trends and what is popular and fashionable at the moment. And I think that cocktails Fair. are fashionable right now. And so younger people are drinking cocktails and enjoying them. Um, and there's a lot of creativity in cocktails and there's a lot of um, cocktail bars opening there, or programs. There are plenty of cocktail bars opening, but there's also like a um, culturally a very different vibe to the cocktail scene and the bartender scene than there is to the wine scene. And I think that that vibe is very attractive to young people at the moment. Describe what that is. Is it less stuffy, less sommelier? I mean, is less that what you're... You see a lot of tattooed bartenders. Um, you see, I mean, there's a cool factor to the bartender community. Um, and I think that the sommelier community tried to develop a cool factor, but it's always been a geek community. Yeah. Um, does that, I don't know if encourage is the right word, but does that encourage you because in the name of your magazine is spirits to make sure you're on top, you know, of all, what goes in these drinks, what the trends are, who's doing it well? Well, we've been chastised for a long time about not covering spirits enough. And so we've spent a lot of time during the pandemic trying to figure out how we could cover spirits in a way that's relevant to our audience without trying to... Um, without trying to change our, our audience, um, because we, we're not really interested in trying to change the community of people who are reading the magazine. We, I mean, you know, anyone who's in publishing always wants to expand that community, but we want to keep our same voice and we want to keep our same community. So we are, you know, we, we have in our latest issue, a major feature on American single malt whiskey, um, which is very much a craft spirit kind of product and fits well with the wine community that we're in. Um, we also have a story on Amaro, um, very and, hot and, and drinks with Amaro. And, and so we're, we're starting a, um, a panel in our LA with our LA team to, um, assess, small categories of interesting spirits that we'll be reporting on, as well as to talk about cocktails using those spirits. It's, it's 
pretty hard not to walk into certain restaurants and see it like in a Morrow, yeah. you know, offering. Mm-hmm. So if people see it in the magazine, they're like, I saw that here, mm-hmm. you know, it's good timing on the, um, the American whiskey thing. Is that something that is trying to emulate Scotch whiskey or not necessarily just Scotch? It's really not because it's um, much more, I mean, Chantal Martineau did that story and she was interested in writing it because it's a, it's a category in formation. Um, there was a lot of activity in that category before it actually became a category. So it was sort of being ignored by the BATF or the TTV or whatever you call it now. Um, and that in itself really surprised me because I don't think of them as ignoring anything. Um, right. I think of them as being really on top of stuff. So the there there's a group now that's trying to define exactly what an American single malt should be, um, how rigorously it needs to be controlled, and and how the labeling should adhere and and um, and there are a lot of really great whiskeys out there that are being made in very different creative ways, being labeled as single malts. So, and if people go to the magazine, they'll mm-hmm. see discussions of specific brands yeah. and you know background and all mm-hmm. of that um are they good are they do they have promise um i think i'm told they have promise i don't taste spirits anymore okay. so um my liver can only take so much <laughs> but the war nobody's <laughs> holding their nose they're like this oh, is no, interesting no 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 they're okay. actually really good yeah good good so you, you know that's a story to keep track on the future mm-hmm. um <clears throat> I think one of the cool things that you did with me in the past few years is, you know, I came to you and said, come on the show at the end of the year. And, you know, you cover wine like no one else. Let's talk about, you know, that year. And in the past few years, you chose to look at the year through specific wines, wineries and their stories. Mm And the story is pretty much tied to, you know, what's going on. Um, So, you know, of of course, we're going to do that again. And you selected a few wines that that exhibit that. I brought three wines that I really love to sort of talk about and to... It's more than the wine, right. Why why they're topical at the moment. Yeah. All right. So let's start. You pick. What do you want to start with? Yeah, I think we should start with the... um, with the Lagargista wine. Okay. So um, let's tell everyone, you know, give them the vitals first, and okay. then t- let's talk about the story, and then we'll even taste and discuss. So this wine is from the Champlain Valley in Vermont, um, and it is a pet nat. Um, Dieter Heken and Caleb Barber make it. They started planting grapes at their restaurant garden in 99, and transitioned from being restaurateurs to being winemakers. And he's a chef, and she's she's been basically a full-time winemaker now. She's incredibly talented. Um, she works with a lot of hybrid grapes and makes some very beautiful wines from them that I find sort of astonishing because I always very snooty about hybrid grapes. I never thought that they could do much of anything interesting. Um, and she makes one wine that is, um, I think it's called Vino Junco, um, that can stand with really other other great wines of the world. It's a really, really, really beautiful wine. Um, but, um, I know her wines, not all of them. Is mm-hmm. that a red? That's or, a white. It's a white. Yeah. 
and tell people what a hybrid is. I mean, it sounds kind of obvious. So, so this wine in particular, this wine is made from Marquette, which is a cross between two varieties, two, um, two species of grapes, basically, um, Vetus vinifera and another Vetus species. So um, it, was, it was developed in um, the University of Minnesota because they, they were developing and they continue to develop a lot of cold hardy right. varieties. So they, they use the genetics to um, strengthen the vine against cold weather. And because a lot of Vetus vinifera is just too fragile to last through. And Vetus vinifera are like the classic European varietals. How would you categorize that? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a species of grape that um, survived through the ice age in Georgia, <laughs> and in the very south of Spain, Portugal, sort of south western Spain and Portugal, um, and then spread back through Europe after the ice age and repopulated all of Europe. And so the French, the grapes, the great French grapes that we all know and love are descended mainly from Georgian grapes and a lot of Iberian grapes, specifically Portuguese grape, but also there's arguments for um, Tempranillo being from the Southwest rather than from the Northeast. There's arguments for Garnacha being from the Southwest rather than, you know, so they've done a lot of covers a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, you know, and Grenache made its way to France, whether the question is, did it make its way from France to Spain and Portugal, or did it make its way from Spain right. and Portugal to France? We um, don't know. I think it's pretty clear at this point, but I don't, I don't know that anyone's finalized that DNA study. What is clear? Um, I think, I mean, in my mind, I, I assume that it's a Spanish grape that made its way to France. Okay. Um, um, and predominant in the south of France? I mean, or Yeah, in, it's mainly in the Rhone. Right. Yeah. North and south and, Rhone. And, and throughout More some of the, south, yeah. throughout some of the um, southern districts of France. But it's, it's um, there's so much Garnacha in Spain and there's like a, there's like a route if you start in, um, if you start in the Venus de Madrid area and work your way north and east. There's all sorts of Garnacha along that route. Um, so I, I think that I'd have to look back, but I think that there might be some Canary Island connection as well. It's not clear to me. I I, I did study it for a while and tried yeah. to figure it all out. Yeah, the Canary Islands are starting to make a lot of wine. So this wine is called Si Confonde. Si Confonde. Si Confonde. Mm -hmm. Now. You said it's hybrid grapes, Marquette. You mm -hmm. describe what it is. Are those, did she plant those because, you know, Vermont is an interesting weather climate area? Are they indigenous to that area? They no, well, by definition, <clears throat> hybrid grapes are not indigenous because they're, they're, uh, they're created. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, I think that there are indigenous grapes in the Northeast, um, Vitas Labrusca, um, but you know, that's conquered or, um, you know, there, there are, there are lots of native grapes. Right. Um, but this is, this is a grape that was produced, that was genetically produced to, or crossed to survive in, in climates like Vermont, where you've got very cold winters. So, um, <clears throat> she planted this grape about five miles from the, 
um, shore of Lake Champlain. And um, it's a really interesting soil. It's, she describes it, what does she say? She says it's um, a 500 million year old fossilized coral reef dragged up from the equator. Jesus. You know, so it's like up in New York state, um, north of the Erie Canal, actually, there's tons of limestone, um, really lots of limestone soils. And up in, in Vermont, there's this amazing, you know, that's an amazing place to be able to grow grapes. But in the past, you wouldn't have been able to sustain vines on in that kind of weather. Right. So um, it's it's partly a climate change story because I think when that you say sustain vines, sustain vines of those varietals. Most, I mean, most any vines that you okay. want to make wine out of. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a lot more wine in in Vermont now than there than there ever was. Right. Um, and you know, it used to be that in the Northeast you'd had a lot of fruit wines. But now there's a lot more quality grape wine and more people I hear every day about people planting. And it's all little tiny parcels in Vermont. Right. But you've got Quebec, you've got Nova Scotia, you've got a lot of stuff going on further north and, and east that is um, making pretty amazing stuff. Right. So, um, so tell me. So okay. this is a pet gnat. Okay. It's, um, it's, she makes it. Here's how she describes how she makes it. She says that she... Um, foot crushes the grapes. She ferments it with the ambient yeast, so there are no added added yeasts. And she bottles it with enough sugar so that there's enough sugar in the bottle to create the bubbles. So it's not a traditional method champagne-style wine. It's a pétillant naturel wine. Which is once fermented, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're saying no sugar added? No sugar added. No she just su- leaves sugar right. in... She, she doesn't ferment it dry, so there's sugar in the grapes still when she puts it in the bottle to finish and it basically finishes the fermentation in bottle so that it creates bubbles. Is there an issue with natural yeast? I mean, does it make it harder in Vermont because of the weather and the location or there's natural yeast if you make wine virtually anywhere? There's microbial populations everywhere. Okay. And I think that she, she farms organically. Um, so it's, um, I think that people who are careful farmers sustain these populations in their vineyards and in their cellars in ways that can create finished wines. Right. I think that the a lot of winemakers would argue with me about this, but I think a lot of the challenge with using commercial yeast, a lot of the challenge that people who use commercial yeast have with native native fermentations is that they don't off they don't always finish if you don't have really careful farming and if you're not farming for that purpose and then um, you can get rogue yeasts involved in your in your vineyard in your in your cellar you can get um, a lot of yeast that give very off aromas and you can get a lot of fermentations that will, will just stop um, the yeasts that are resident in a in a winery are usually the Saccharomyces that will finish most any fermentation. So as long as you don't get a lot of nasty yeast involved, um, these very vigorous yeasts that just basically take root in in cellars, um, they'll finish your fermentation. Um, So I think that it's, you can get cleaner, fresher, clearer wines without 
relying on native yeast right or or ambient yeast right um you can control the, the process much more but i find the wines are much more interesting and much more i think of them as more complete expressions of their place because they have I, I agree. the microbial life from the place one of the stories you know when i asked you about stories you know wine and spirits covered one of the stories on this show has been farming mm -hmm. the effects of farming you know how the realization nothing new everything is done in the vineyard um, you know low intervention there and in the um seller and all of that um you know that's been the story so you alluded to it or you said it but farming practices regenerative which is you know really mm -hmm. top of the game by bio, biodynamic organic by farming that way you're talking about when you make the wine that's a better opportunity if you're using ambient yeasts what, what I'm saying is that if you, if you farm so that your soil is alive and- Which is you, everything I mentioned. Yeah. Um, then the microbial population that is feeding nutrients from the soil to your vines, the population that is living on your grape skins- Works. It works. It's a healthier population. Right. That's what I was trying to get to. Yeah. So the two things together. It's not a guarantee, but, no, no, but it no, tends no. to be, I mean, it yeah. tends to be that you have a healthier, a healthier yeah. population. And so you're going to, you're going to be less likely to have trouble in your cellar. Right. Um, so she's farming organically. She's using native yeasts. Mm -hmm. um, she's calling this a pet nat. She's fermenting it once. Um, is this a hundred percent market? Yes, it is. Yeah. So let's just do a quick. Uh, it's a it's a pretty deep purple wine, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. It's it's kind of a cool color. Um, I've read, and you and I talked about it. It's Lambrusco like, definitely. It's great pizza wine. We're here at Roberta's, and it yeah. would be perfect with pizza at Roberta's. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me about the nose. I mean, I find it pretty funky. Um, I don't think it's that funky. It's very fruity. Yes, it's very sort of. Um, Fruity, grapey, mm -hmm. but not grapey in a bad way. No. Like Manischewitz. I, I get more like black raspberry grape. or... Yeah. yeah. But I also get some funk to it. So The fermentation, it's not overly, you know, bubbly or whatever. I mean, nice, small, right? I just think it's really friendly, drinkable wine. And um, what I love about it is that it's not ambitious, fussy, difficult um, to understand. It's just easy. It's really I easy. I think people are looking for yeah. that. Besides pizza, I mean, can you open this with like a charcuterie tray? Oh, absolutely. It's perfect yeah. with like sliced salami, sharp cheeses, stuff like well, that. Well, as you said, Lambrusco, any kind of anything you'd serve with Lambrusco, you could serve with this. I mean, Mortadella would be delicious with this. Um, any sort of salumi would be really great with it. Speck would be great with it. All right. Anything else to be said on this? Um, just that I think it's really exciting to be able to drink wines from, from Vermont, from Quebec, from when we did, we, we did a, um, a, a kind of a salon session on North American sparkling wine with this wine included, um, and then reported on it in the magazine. And we had a wine from Nova Scotia as well, Benjamin Bridge. And we had a bunch of Finger Lakes wines. 
and the Finger Lakes wine showed beautifully, but the Benjamin Bridge wine just Is that blew a everyone away. Or? Sparkling wine, yep. Okay. Um, 100% Chardonnay. And, you know, it's, it's actually not as far north as Washington State, which, you know, we think of Nova Scotia being in Canada, yeah. it must be far north, but it's yeah. not as far north as Washington State. So, um, and it's, you know, the, 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 the climate is moderated by the Bay of Fundy, and it's a big fruit growing district there where um, Benjamin Bridge is located, and the wine is beautiful. So, back to part of the bigger story. Is he able to do that because things have changed climate-wise or they just never got to it till now? Or a little of both? In Nova Scotia? Yeah. Um, I think that that region is becoming more um, moderate because of climate change. But I think that they've been doing it for a while. They've been doing it for several decades. Okay. So um, Unlike England, which has become a sparkling wine destination exactly not decades right well they've been they've been at it for decades recognition has been the recognition has been much more recent right yeah in fact we have an article on english sparkling wine in this issue okay um the recognition has been recent but they're not selling a lot of their wine here no they've in fact sort of pulled out of this market they they're selling a lot of their wine in 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 england is it because it's just difficult to market and you got to work to get people interested in it i think that you know, there are certain places like Switzerland um, where you have amazing wine. That don't but leave it's ex- the country. But it's expensive. And they can get their price in their country and they can't get that same price. Leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that until the Brits make a real, I mean, until they start to make, until they start making so much wine they really need to export, right. they're, they're, they're building some export markets. They're just not really focusing on this one. Because they're getting good notices. Yeah. You know, generally. All right. So let's, what's the second wine we want to talk ah, about? Okay. Um, next, we're going to go to Corson. Okay. You have um, another glass over there, Josh. Okay, but this, Corson okay. will kill this. Yeah. All right. <laughs> It's hard not to be a fan of Kathy Corison. Kathy is an amazing person and such a sweet person and just so talented that um, I wanted to bring this wine on for a few reasons. One is that it's her basic wine. So this is, you know, she makes several wines from her own estate vineyards, Sun Basket, Kronos. Kronos. Um, And then she makes this wine from some of her own vineyards as well as purchase grapes in the surrounding area from the Benchlands, um, basically St. Helena Benchlands. So I'm sure she curates and, her partners, right? Yeah. As far as vineyard. You know that she would. Yeah. I mean, she's <laughs> a bit of a perfectionist. Yeah. Okay. She is very much a perfectionist. Um, what's interesting to me about this wine is, one, that everyone's talking about how hot Napa Valley's getting. And St. Helena is the hottest place in Napa Valley. And, or certainly among the hottest places in Napa Valley, Calistoga is pretty hot as well. Um, and yet Kathy is willing, willing and able to make cool, beautiful Cabernet. And in fact, this is from what she considered a really cool vintage. She harvested two weeks later than usual. Um, but she's learned to farm her, vin- her vines to be able to get ripe fruit. It's not, you know, there are a lot of people picking really early and making very lean, austere wines um, that have low alcohol. Um, 
she's found ways of farming so that she doesn't allow her, her, her grapes to respire the acidity that they otherwise would. And so they're maintaining freshness while they're ripening. And so she gets these very rich, voluptuous Cabernets that are remarkably fresh among, you know, fresher than a lot of the wines from Down Valley, which is a cooler region. Right. But it's her intention. You went quick. I mean, what does she do to get there? I mean, as far as farming, you know, what is she doing? I mean, we talked about picking early, picking late. Well, at Kronos, um, she's farming very old vines. Okay. So she Um, has the luxury of... She has has a luck of of having old vines. Um, she basically because Napa they pull stuff out like every fifteen twenty years. I think she's more of a keeper. Well, she, she bought of- the vineyard expecting to have to pull it out, and it turned out not to be um, flocks or ridden because it was on St. George rootstock. So um, she just lucked out when she um, when she bought the vineyard. She kept it. And, so she and she's, been able, that. And, and she's yeah. been able to sustain it through her organic farming. She um, she opened, she says, she what she describes is that she opens up the canopy at the top. She opens up the top of the can, canopy so that the way that she manages her canopy is that the fruit gets morning sun, but not afternoon hot sun. So there's a canopy on the side, but an opening on the top. Mm-hmm. So as the sun moves, the sides protected. Yeah. In the morning or, mm-hmm. you know, close to the morning, it's... I mean, the morning sun is the one you want. The morning sun is the cool sun. Right. The afternoon sun is the hot sun. Right. You want and, to protect the vines. Yeah. Um, the other reason I thought this would be interesting to show is because um, we have this very long section in the magazine in this, in this particular issue on Napa Valley resilience in the face of climate change, um, interviewing Dan Petrosky who makes the Massacan wines. He was at Larkmead for years and was doing um, events around studying climate change and, and all sorts of other, you know, bringing people together to talk about it. Um, he left Larkmead and is doing his own thing now, um, which he's been working on for a number of years. He did it while he was at Larkmead. Yeah, exactly. It's a white wine only, mm-hmm. Massacan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also interviewed Leo McCloskey, interesting rhyming um, pair of men. That's funny. I just yeah. thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> so Leo had a company called Analogics, um, which purported to be able to um, help clients get very high scores and critical reviews. All right. Let um, me just, these are not your words. They're mine. There was a parkerization of wine. A very famous wine critic, Robert Parker, liked a certain style of wine, which he gave high scores. They were very big, opulent, you know, wines and all that. Leo created a company scientifically to get you to those wines, right? That's what he was selling, yeah. Yeah. So he further pushed, you know, that that model, that mm-hmm. big, you know, over-the-top, you know, Napa wine. All right, so he was He was measuring, um, among other things, he was measuring the way the tannins ripened. And um, he believed in this complex anthocyanin in the in the in the wines would create a trigger for um, pleasure in certain critics, um, and so and I'm putting words and putting thoughts in his mouth, and I'm, I don't know if he would say it that way, but um, he's very particular about how his. Um, work is represented. So he recently 
shifted his business model. Um, now it's called Green Analogics. And he found that the vines were producing these kind of very, very ripe anthocyanins on their own, um, the ripe tannins on their own without any need from anybody's help. Um, and this is all under the guise of Napa being very warm and mm -hmm. climate change, mm -hmm. you know, forcing the heat and all that. Yeah. We want to stay with that. So, so he found... <laughs> so basically what, what he said, um, David, David Darlington um, interviewed him, Elaine Chukin brown interviewed Dan, Dan Petrosky, um, and they, they're both talking about the future of Cabernet in Napa Valley. McCloskey is saying that Cabernet, according to him, is toast. Um, and then you get a little deeper into it and he says, well, it's not necessarily a problem below Oakville, but above Oakville, the climate is changing to what um, this like was how, called. The, how a mountain can sustain that. He well, said. he says the, Koppel, the Koppen Geiger index so it's a um, it's different from the Winkler index, which is like region one, region two, region three, which is based on heat summation days or um, degree days. This is also looks at vegetation. It looks at um, at aridity, you know, rain patterns and things like that. So he says that Napa Valley used to be a warm Mediterranean climate, a warm summer Mediterranean ca ca category of climate. And now that northern part of the valley Harry. is moving into hot. a hot summer right. Mediterranean climate, which is not um, a place where you'd want to grow Cabernet Sauvignon. So um, which is he why says he that, said that's toast up yeah. around there. Um, so he's suggesting that people plant white grapes there. Um, and I think that it's interesting to look at a wine with a, a grower whose intention is to grow fresh Cabernet in St. Helena, which is ground Back zero for ground zero for this hot, what he's calling a hot summer Mediterranean climate. And um, and Kathy's wine being, I think, a very beautiful, fresh, um, complex Cabernet. I agree. Not not the characteristics of what Leo was trying to get to, mm -hmm. but the best of, you know, what Napa can give you. Can she sustain that as it remains to be seen it does yeah i mean she'll fight it any way she mm -hmm. can um she is i mean this is 2019 not 2020 so um 2020 was a disaster for most everyone in that valley and ironically you know leo said cabernet is toast white wine dan left a revered red wine maker larkmead mm -hmm. And while he was there and what he left to was his own winery that mm. only makes white wines. Mm. And he said he didn't do it on trend. That's when he was in Italy. That's what you drank, you know, in the South because it was hot and all that. So he loved all of that, um, which is interesting. So he's kind of stumbled in the right direction in a good way. Yeah, but he's also saying that he believes in the resiliency of Napa Valley. Right. Um, so I think it's I think it's a very interesting contrast of these two perspectives. Um, and Dan's gives me probably more hope than Leo's does. Yeah, I agree um, with you. But I also, um, they, they have different intentions for the wine, for what they think wine should be or what, or why they're in this business. So, and, and my, um, 
my interest in this business tends to align more with Dan's than with Leo's. I so. agree with you when we talked about it off air, you know, about what we think Leo's intentions are, you know, why he went to analogics to green analogics. Um, but I think it's best if you read the article and uh, formulate your own opinions. Um, are there, Napa produces a lot of, you know, high profile wines, a lot of uh, lovers of their wines and everything. Is what Kathy doing, um, is she in the minority? Uh, I I like to think that she's not in the minority. Um, I think that the, um, the there's a lot of noise around cult Cabernets, around 100-point Cabernets from other critics. Um, we tend to make the noise, noise being negative, positive? Positive. Positive, yeah. okay. We tend to make more noise about wines like Dominus, wines like Inglenook, like Kathy Corson's wine, like... Diamond Mountain, Diamond Creek on Diamond Mountain. Which is um, a Leo client. Yeah. <laughs> but so is so is Ridge. So Ridge is, you know, is revered. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people use, I mean, Leo's very smart. And a lot of people used Leo's, you know, Leo started Ridge. And um, a lot of people used him for information about what was going on in their wines. They didn't. It was didn't, more the information yeah. than getting to something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I he, think Paul Draper probably was more into that. Yeah. And and Paul, I think, has um has his own ideas about his intentions for his wines that don't agree with Leo's intentions for his other clients. Not not all of his clients. I mean, all of all of his clients use him differently. So um right. you know, it's it's really um I, I think he's he he's a scientific force in the industry and a valuable scientific force in the industry. I'm surprised that there isn't offshoots, unless you could tell me otherwise, of what he does, you know, using the information with a different perspective. I mean, there are there other analogic type things? I know there's a lot of analysis there, and analysis is big. Well, I mean, if you look at what Michelle Roland, Michelle Roland was... A lab tech, right? Um, who got he into that being, whole? Who, who got into consulting? Another so guy it, who influenced the type yeah, of. Wine. I mean, it's really um, you know basically Michelle Roland and and Robert Parker were were good friends back in the early eighties. Makes sense. And I always think of Parker as Michelle Roland's spokesperson. <laughs> yeah, when you think about you know, how for, things for eighty two, I mean Roland created the eighty two Bordeaux in a lot of ways, and. Um, you know, I mean, the 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 vintage created the the eighty two Bordeaux, but he had a big influence on that style of wine, and Parker fell in love with it and and was really promoting that style of wine. So, you know, there there are there are inflection points, and I think that that he that McCloskey is a different kind of consultant than Roland than Roland, but not that different, right? You know, they're both lab people in the end. Yeah, they're doing a lot of similar things. Um, all right, Josh, we have another wine to talk about, but we need to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, um, we will talk about another very interesting varietal and region. I think Josh is excited about it, too. We're talking to Josh Green. Josh is the editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. 
Um, we schlep Josh in here the end of every year to look back. We look back uh, at the year through the lens of these uh, wineries and, you know, the effects. Um, so we'll be right back. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We're back. We're back with my guest, Josh Green. Josh Green, editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. Um, Josh is here to talk about... um, the year in wine 2022 and we look at it through the lens of some specific wineries and josh i think we're on to our um third i wouldn't say winery unless you have some specifics a varietal and a region Mm -hmm. that um i've been very well versed by sitting and interviewing Christian Sheeta and the mm-hmm. good Ogal people. Oh, fantastic. Tasting, you know, some of these other people's wines. Mm-hmm. So where are we going now? Well, we're going from what I consider one really beautifully fresh wine to another. So we're going from St. Helena, a warmer spot than Bergenland. We're going to Bergenland, which is a little bit east of Vienna. About in, an hour or so? Yeah. A little more? An hour or two east. I mean, depending and on where you're going. there's a lake effect there, yep. right? Lake. I can Good never luck. Say, yeah, yeah, I can't New either. Zealand or yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah, I've never been able to say it. Um, tried, I've been trying to learn to say Germitzerschatz for <laughs> <laughs> for years, and I can never. It's Germitzerschatz. Yeah, it's just, I, I can't say it. I'm terrible at trying to get that. Um, so this is um, Blaufrankisch. Um, I brought this along because on Saturday I'm headed over there to a conference to look at Blaufrankisch in the context of other great red wines in the world and sort of ask about its place so in the world. Before we get into the varietal and the region, again, tell me about the process. So I guess you haven't been talking about these wines that much. I don't want to put words in your mouth or even sound negative. Now you're going out there to do a pretty deep dive. How did that come up? I mean, there's a uh, an organization or a tasting. I mean, what are you going to? Um, I'm going to a tasting of 
basically it's a it's a discussion among people that the um, Dorley Muir, who runs a um, a marketing company in Vienna called Wine and Partners, and um, also makes a wine in Carnuntum from Blaufrankisch, um, is helping to organize an event in Lech. I don't, again, I'm not sure how to say it, L-E-C-H. I think you got yeah. it. Uh, which is near Zurich, in fact. Um, and they wanted to bring a bunch of people together. They've got Jamie Good coming from England. Um, they've got Jancis Robinson coming. Um, there's a, I'm trying to remember who DMW is, who's running the actual conference. Um, but they, they wanted to bring us together to um, talk about Blaufrankisch in the context of, you know, is it a great, is it a great red variety or not? And so they brought a bunch of high level Blaufrankisch wines Producers. together and we're going to be tasting them and talking about them. Is that void of the actual winemakers? If they're just bringing the bottles in? And I not don't being, know. Okay. I mean, it I could be yeah. the wines and the mm -hmm. winemakers, or it could be just the wines. Yeah. I mean, I'm going, I'm going because I want to visit these producers. I'm staying after the event and you're going, going to over to, around a going little. over to Vienna and spending a couple of days visiting producers and, and including Hans Schuster, um, who's one we're going to taste now. Um, I have a good restaurant for you, Philippau. Ah. I know the chef. I'll give mm -hmm. you the info off air uh, in Vienna. Mm -hmm. I think he's a one-star Michelin guy or maybe mm -hmm. two. Um, putting you on the spot for half a second, how much did you know about Blanc and Frisch? And how much have you drank up until now? Um, I've known Blaufrankisch from being in Vienna 20 years ago, um, from tasting it often at the magazine, as well as um, there have been several producers who are regularly in among our top 100, especially Morich, um, who specializes in Blaufrankisch. And I don't know if you've had the Morich wines, they are M-O-R-I-C. Morich. Um, yeah. So but it's it's, it's sort of an Moritz. Eastern European. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and his um, Roland, um, oh God, Velik is his name, Roland Velik. And he specializes in Blaufrankisch and makes these very beautiful. He's the proprietor of Morich? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's the winemaker. And... Um, he makes these very beautiful wines um, in a in a lighter style, not in a um, big, robust style. But I mean, they're to call them not big and robust. They're pretty big, um, but they're but they're not um, they're not chunky wines. They're they're elegant wines. They're very elegant wines. And they're so I, red. They're very red. They're I wouldn't say tannic, but there's tannin in there. Oh yeah, they're very strong. I wouldn't use the word big, but they're not small. Yeah. And there's I'm, I'm a trying spice to, in there, yeah. right? I'm trying not to compare <laughs> to them Cabernet. to Cabernet and, okay. and Pinot Noir. You know, which I is was going to say it's more Pinot than I think Pinot but, may be in its DNA. Yeah. Um, I think Pinot is in the DNA of the first wine that we tasted, the Chico Fondo, um, the Marquette. Yes. Um, yes, you're but, right. The, yeah. the Marquette grape mm -hmm. has a peak, right. Um, but Blaufrankisch... Um, I forget exactly what the, I, I read about the etymology of it, um, but it is, I think if it's made with that 
elegant intention, it can be very, very beautiful. So I'm not an authority on Blaufrankisch, but I love the wine. So it's one of the, it's, it's, there are certain wines that I go to um, that I, I'm not necessarily, you know, I mean, I guess I can think of two or three people who are authorities on Blaufrankisch. David Shilkinek, for instance, knows a lot about Blaufrankisch. Um, but I just, I, you know, if I see it on a wine list, I'll order it. So it. just frame this for me. We're doing this show. We're mm -hmm. looking at the year through the lens of, you know, wines and wineries. Why are we talking about this in relation to looking back to 2022? Well, this is looking ahead. Okay. This is looking ahead to what I'm, I'm working on research wise right now. And, um, honestly, I find that I spend much more of my time looking ahead than looking back right now. I think that the, um, the last few years have been very challenging years for most everyone. And um, for me, what's key is to look forward and to find exciting things to look forward to. And Blaufrankisch Blau to me so is an exciting thing to look things. forward to. Let's talk specifically about Blaufrankisch and mm -hmm. this wine. And then as we progress towards the end of the show, I just want to come back and ask you a few of the other things you may be looking forward to. Sure. I'm guessing you're traveling more than you did if you're traveling at all. You know, mm -hmm. we'll talk about all that. Sure. All right. So can you pour me a glass? I would love to. I hate to pour out the Corson, but I'll pour you some. No, I, I agree. Rosie Schuster. I will... Uh... So Josh, before we before I let you go, I want to take bottle shots mm -hmm. so that I have them for our social media, and I also sure. want to take a couple of pictures of you. All right, so you're going to talk about this, but before I let you do it, I, just a visual evaluation. This is a fairly deep, dark, brooding wine. <laughs> you know, it's got a very interesting nose, which we'll get into, but let's talk specifically about this wine. So um, Hans Schuster makes it. He's got... Um, 14 hectares of vines, well, actually 13 planted right now, and he's, they're spread out in 40 different parcels all around these, I think it's in six different villages. So he doesn't make any single vineyard wines. He just makes blends from all of his different parcels, and he specializes in Blaufrankisch. It's um, very typical out there mm -hmm. to do field blending. I mean, Gudo, Gao, and those guys, they just... All right. So, so he farms organically, um, and he ferments with ambient yeasts, and he uses no new wood in the wine. So for me, even though you say that it's a dark wine, it's delicate. Yes. I find there's a real delicacy to the wine that is, and persistence. There's no um, wood, you know, effect on this mm -hmm. wine. It's I not think chunky. It's just a vessel. No, it's not chunky at all. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I think... I hate, I sound like a kid, but two of the coolest wines I've tasted this year are these wines mm -hmm. and um, Pinot Noir from Germany. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just very interesting wines. I mean, you know, very cool in that sense. All right. So, neutral vessel, mm -hmm. ambient yeast, and any climate issues there? I'll find that out when I'm over. You know, I, don't, I don't know that off the top of my head, but um, I find what's interesting to me is that 
the freshness of fruit in this wine is not so far away from the freshness of fruit in the St. Helena wine. Um, you don't get confiture. You don't get, um, you don't get jammy flavors in it. And Kathy is having a harder time because of the circumstances of the climate to get to where she is than this wine or not necessarily? Um, again, I don't know enough about where right. this wine is. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, gonna I'm guess going to guess yes. I'm going to these vineyards next week. So I'll see, but I, and I would say certainly it's a, it's a, it would, I would expect it to be a much cooler climate. Right. Um, talk to me about process again. So you're going next week, you're going to spend about how much time there? Five, six, seven days. I'm spending seven days altogether, but about two, two and a half days in vineyards. Yeah. Right. Deeply embedded there. So process wise, everything you take in, think about whatever you have to do. When do, will you do a story and when do we see I'll something find, on this? Yeah, I'll find out if I'm going to do a story when after I'm there. And if, if I, it's if, compelling if, enough. If there's a story for me to do, yeah. All right, so I'm going to, I just assign myself as editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. Mm -hmm. I'm going to assume that we're compelled by the wines there mm -hmm. and you have all the information. Based on that, when do you do a story? Three, four months later? Um, I would write it for print in our spring issue, which is our next issue. Which um, comes out when? March? -ish? comes out in, in the beginning of March. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it may appear in some form on the web before that. Um, but it's just, you know, as the editor and publisher, I wouldn't go if I didn't think there was a story there. Right. Um, but I've been places where I thought there would be a story and just came back and said, nah, I'm not writing about that. Right. Um, but it's it would it wouldn't make sense for me to go over and spend seven days of my time without being able to come back. To I the story. agree. And I, I think you're on the right track. And I think that, you know, by the spring, you'd probably be uh, writing stuff about it. Mm -hmm. um, you do you know, do you do you agree with me that the flavor length on this wine is really pretty? I mean, I find it complex and really compelling flavor wise in terms of the length of the, the length of flavor and the detail of the flavor on it. And it's 23 bucks, I, which is really surprising. I know. I mean, a lot of the wines there from who are now the, I wouldn't say cult, but the big wine, their wines are just not that expensive. I agree with you on everything. Um, I think the fruit is amazing. The clarity, you know, it's delineated. It's very interesting. I think the mouthfeel is, you know, like a medium, medium plus. Mm -hmm. Um I think it lingers a little. Um, I think there's really nice fruit, a little spice. Mm -hmm. The tannins are there, but not, you know. There's nothing aggressive in the tannins at all. No, I, I mean, it, it's just a, a wonderful wine. And I think I had Katya Charnagel, who was at mm -hmm. sure. um, mm -hmm. La Bernadine for 10 years. And she just went to Coleman, which is arguably one of the hot restaurants of this year. If you look at her wine list, she probably has a dozen, you know, not producers, but Blafrancish is, mm -hmm. you know, on the list. Just wow. because Austrian, she's Austrian, Marcus Glocker's Austrian, mm -hmm. but it's just interesting as far as all that. So I think you're going to see more of it. Um, when did you decide when you were invited to go to uh no it took me about two months to accept the invitation i was invited i really needed to make a decision about whether i was going to be traveling or not is it and more blau frankish is that something that's a story i'm interested in, or do i want to travel or not no i don't want to travel um 
I went to Italy in November and I'm going to Austria in December. Those are my first two trips since March, 2020. Um, Tell me about the Italy. Was it Chianti or? No, it was for, we were doing a presentation at a, at a um, trade conference called Wine to Wine. And then several of us, Stephanie Johnson and Gianpaolo Paterlini from Aquarello and um, Alison Cariaga, the four of us went to Piedmont for a few days. Um, but my concern about traveling is, you know, do I, do I really need to do this? Do I really, is there, should I be assigning it to somebody else who's already there? So I don't have to burn all this carbon to get there. Is it, you know, I'm going to be wearing a mask from the moment I get on a train to the plane, to the train, to the hotel. I hate that, but I will wear a mask all that way. And so, um, it's not pleasant to travel. You know, it's funny because you hit on a few things. Traveling for health and safety reasons is certainly an important issue. Mm -hmm. But I also think the carbon issue is, you know, how much traveling do you have to do? That's I mean, more important it, to me. If than you the, did yeah. less, right. Yeah. If you did less, is it the end of the world as far as how you cover wines or you personally? You know, probably not. It's a really interesting question for a wine writer because I built my career on going to places and getting the actual story to share with readers. Being on the ground. Yeah, being on the ground and seeing, and, and when I go to places, I demand to see the vineyards. I don't want to spend time in cellars tasting wine. Um, so it makes a big difference for me to be able to be in a vineyard, to see what's growing in the on the ground, what's growing around the vineyard, um, to see what the natural environment is there it tells me a lot about what I'm tasting in the wine. And um, I can't get that other ways. So um, I need to be careful about when I travel, but I want to I want to be able to maintain that part of my career as a writer. So you're going to, going forward, you're going to have to be more deliberate, mm -hmm. um, which is fine. Yeah. Pick your spots. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm okay with that. As long as you're committed to the touchy feely part of, you know, being there at some places, you know, it's you know, really the, the main reason I would have to go is to be in that environment, to experience the environment with the wine rather than just to experience the wine. Right. I think that's, and to you, see, you, you know, you, you never know what people are actually doing, you know, as a wine writer, they can tell you anything and you have no way of, you, there's you're a not, lot of nuance when you're just walking around and looking in the yeah. cellar. They can't, they can't really change the environment of their vineyard for your, um, for your visit. I agree. So, so you can tell something from that. All right. So is there anything else we want to talk about with the Blah Frankish? I, I, we put this in the category of something to look at now, but something that you will be covering, you know, very soon, potentially. Mm -hmm. This is a look forward thing. Um, anything else you want to say about? I would just say that Hans Schuster at Rosie Schuster is making really beautiful wines, that that Moritz is making really beautiful wines, that some of the people you mentioned. Um, Gudalga, Christian Cheetah. Yeah, yeah, awesome they're, stuff. They're all. And um, I'm seeing some new producers when I'm over there. Um People in this country might know this grape as a Lemberger. Right. But, I was going to say yeah. that's its background. But there's some interesting stuff going on in the Finger Lakes with it. There's been a lot of it played around with in Washington State. Um, plant material isn't always the same in the old world and the new world. And in some cases, you, know, you can get really beautiful plant material from massage selections in the old world 
that that are hard to recreate here. Um, so when it's even though it's called the same thing, I was just gonna say it doesn't name, necessarily does it? mean that it's the same thing. I agree with that. Um, we talked about La Garagiste in Vermont. We talked about Kathy Corson in Napa. We talked about La Frankish from the Burgenland region in Austria. Um, in tying everything together, if we can, are there any common denominators that you see in choosing these wines and discussing them? Freshness. These are all, that's a descriptor you'll use for each wine. I would use it for all three of those wines, and it's a, it's something that I look for. Um, I think that just the, I wouldn't call it the philosophy of the magazine, but the um, more the gestalt of the magazine, the, the way that our panels taste what we're looking for is very different from a lot of what um, a lot of what consumers are looking for, to be frank. And um, we're, we're much more geared toward wine as a food and as a beverage for food. And freshness is crucial to that. Um, if you have big, rich, super ripe wines, they may be things that you can taste and drink on their own. But with food, they're kind of clunky and heavy handed and brutal. Um, so we, we are looking for freshness in wine and open, like the openness of these wines. Can I would say define, that they're all open. Can you define freshness? Down. So part of freshness is open. Part of freshness is, I mean, freshness is acidity in the grapes that isn't good. Some or good acidity. Yeah. So which is great for food. Acidity is a, is a, is a challenging topic when it comes to, especially when it comes to new world wine, because a lot of new world wines are grown in desert climates where acidity respires very quickly. And then people are adding acidity back in the way that they were adding sugar back in cool climates in Europe for a long time right. to, um, to tinker with the wine to make it a viable wine. Um, and so when I'm talking about freshness, you can't, I don't think of a, a wine that's acidic as fresh. I think of a wine that tastes like fresh fruit I think of a wine that tastes like fresh, I mean, it can be even fresh mushroom. It can be, it can be fresh forest. Um, but there's a, it has the there's a coolness, elements yeah, there's a coolness factor to it rather than a heat factor. Um, heat tends to come from alcohol, but you can have a low alcohol wine that's hot. So it, it's the, the, the expression of the wine has to do with how integrated everything is. And if the acidity is integrated into, is, is a natural part of the fruit and integrated into it, you don't perceive it as acidic, you perceive it as fresh. Right. Which gets back to, you know, the description. I'm just curious, what makes a low alcohol wine hot? Um, if, if it doesn't have other aspects that are... are it's not balanced. That, that aren't the covering the acidity, is, they, that aren't covering the alcohol. So that's yeah. a crappy wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, all right. Um, as I mentioned, I will post the wines that we tasted so everyone can, uh, you know, taste them. Um, I mentioned this to you before when we talked about Blaufrankisch and the Burgenland is sort of looking forward. Are there any other things or plans for next year looking forward, whether it's travel or coverage of certain wines? Um, I mean, I love the Burgenland Blaufrankisch thing. We're... Right now we're gearing up for our restaurant coverage for the next issue. And that's an interesting challenge given the 
development of, you know, the, the sort of gutting of the restaurant industry in the last three years and now the rebirth of it. Um, so we're really exploring what that rebirth is, how that rebirth and is happening. And you do that by talking to people in the biz? Yeah. Mostly the wine people? The wine people in the business, yeah. And, and sort of taking the temperature of the business right now. You kind of never stopped doing that, right? We did continue to do it, but it was less effective people because weren't people working. weren't working. Right. Yeah. right, but that wasn't any fault of your coverage. It's no. just there was nothing to cover. Mm -hmm. Now you jump back into it and get a well, temperature yeah, of where things there were, are. There were things to cover, but there, there were the wine sales were all skewed because of the weirdness of the market at the moment. Yeah. Um, do you think we could do a show on hospitality as far as hospitality workers? Um, Probably. And, you know, how they're treated, how they were treated, how they left the industry, you know, what it takes to be there. A lot of them did leave the industry and a lot of new people came into the industry. So, um, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about how hospitality treated people are treated, um, how they should be treated, how the how the business should be structured. A lot of people used this time to restructure their businesses for the better. Right. Um, so well, it definitely shined a light on mm -hmm. the negatives. Yeah. And people left for that. And then some of the good people said, wait a second, you know, people are our most valuable resource. We have to do a better job with them. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Danny, Mar Danny Myers group has been a, has played a leadership role in that and has struggled with some of their efforts to create more equitable pay scales for, for their teams, looking at the restaurant as a team rather than in front of the house right. and back of the house. He did the no tip so he could yeah. distribute. Mm -hmm. He put it on the check. Yeah. And other people as well have done that, but he's, um, he was really a leader in it and, right. um, and got burned a couple times, but also was successful with it in other places. So one of the things I hear from people on the show or people that have been on the show is getting people to work for you. It's, it's not easy. You open a restaurant or you have a very viable restaurant and it's really hard to get good people. Sometimes I think that's across, across the economy right now. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're so in it's a not weird just, place in the labor market. It's, um, it's really hard to understand what's going on with that. I don't grasp why it's so hard to hire people, but it's really hard to hire people. Yeah. We'll see what happens with that. All right. We have to wrap up soon. But one of the things we do on the show is the wine list. And I think you've done it six other times. And it's nice to compare. And let's do this quickly because I know I got to get you out of here. Mm -hmm. I ask all my guests from day one the same five questions. And I think some were answered today. But dig a little deeper um, and answer the five questions. And I will go back and do a comparison. Okay. The first question is, what are you drinking now? And that's what's in your fridge, what you could be tasting. And I think a lot of what we talked about may be that. But is there anything else? Do you I've taste the Bergenland stuff in advance or you wait to get there? Um, I've tasted a lot of it, but not in the last month or so. So, so um, what have you been drinking? I've been drinking a lot of Alsace, white okay. wines, a lot of Alsace Riesling. Um, I've been drinking a lot of champagne when I can. Um, I was drinking a Sanso from um, Itata last night at Contento. Um, That's funny. And, a friend of mine was there last night. Too. Oh, really? Yeah. Great restaurant. Oh, great. Yeah. Yannick wasn't there, he no. said. But yeah, wonderful. Wonderful, tight list. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Anything else? That's enough. 
That's a that's a lot of what I drink. That's is, good. Yeah. Um, just talk to me about champagne for a second. If I mean, we can all drink Salas and you know be ballers, but if you want to drink champagne as a treat, but not spend a ton of money, I mean, where do we go with that? Is that you know some growers that are not you know super famous? Is it the Rotorer? We did Rotorer last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're biodynamic, they're reasonable. I mean, is that still a I place think, to stay? I think Rotorer vintage wines are a steal. You know, they're they're such great wines, and they're not horribly expensive you know they're not cheap it's not cheap to buy these wines by any means no but for what you're getting but for what you're getting you're yeah. getting a great you're getting a great wine for the price of of what you would otherwise get a good wine for and that numbered series i mm-hmm. mean i forgot what we drank last year i think two, it was 242 yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i mean it's up a few since mm-hmm. then or whatever that's i think, I think like, they're on 243 now yeah <laughs> i guess i mean that would be the next thing all um, right so that's number one um see if you remember i always ask everyone their fav- favorite wine and food pairing I always wonder, you know, like I said, you've been here seven times more than anyone. Mm-hmm. I got to go back and see if it's the same answer or it changes every year. Well, Not what you think is a good wine pairing, mm-hmm. like, you know, Pinot and roasted chickens. What do you, what do you like? Well, um, for Thanksgiving, we roasted a duck with, okay. um, and glazed it with a um, rose hip sauce that we made from the rose hips outside my door so um so rose hips are citrusy right i mean a I've little been, bit yeah what they're, else are they're they more like? vegetal they are mm-hmm. vegetal mm-hmm. they're like little cherries they almost yeah. like, like they're they reddish like with the yeah. yellow top yeah. mm-hmm. um so you so we dried the rose them hips? yep my and friend amy picked them um, did she you dried extract them. them or you soak them soak them yeah okay how'd that work out it was beautiful it was from um sean sherman's i think his name is um the sous chef's indigenous cookbook Okay. So they always say when you pair a wine with that, you almost have to pair it to the sauce than the meat. So what did you do? So it was a subtle, it was a really subtle part of the duck. So it was really really duck. That roast duck with? Pinot Noir. Okay. Uh, Specific? Anything? It was a Drew Pinot Noir. Yeah, it was. um, Where is Drew from? Jason Drew's from Elk in. in, Washington? No, in um, Anderson Valley or um, Mendocino County. Mm, interesting yeah. choice. All right. I know from talking to you and we stay in touch, you're up in Massachusetts. You don't like to run around. But when I ask you favorite wine bar and or restaurant, people that do it well. Mm-hmm. Like, remember I said I've had three guests on that got three stars from the New York Times? Le Rock, Jorge Riera, he, he takes a natural wine list to Midtown New York. Um, Chase Sinzer opens up Claude and mm-hmm. does a mixed list. And then Katja Scharnagel does Coleman and basically Francophile, Austrian, German, and a little, you know, U.S. Um, My favorite list right now? What's... What's a wine restaurant and or bar, you know, that you, you like what they're doing? I love Chambers. Okay. I love Pascaline. Yeah. It's hard uh, not to love Pascaline, okay. but I think that I think that what she what I love about Chambers is that I love it more than Racines. So, you know, and I was always a big fan of Racines, but I'm much more comfortable at Chambers now. It's the same restaurant, you know, yeah. but different, well, different, different chef. chef and different team. Food, right. Different team. Wonderful. I mean, and um and it's a really, um, it's a welcoming, beautiful neighborhood place. 
with, I agree with, with an amazing wine list. Yeah. I, her wine list is unbelievable. Um, I agree with you on everything with that. Pascaline wrote a book. It's only in French. Mm -hmm. She promised when it's translated to English, she'll come on early next year, which is exciting. Um, and it took her years to write it. I think singularly, that's a great answer because that's as good as anything. All right. Fourth question. Favorite all-time wine? I'm very redundant in the sense that I say the same things over and over, which is redundant in itself. Um, when I originally structured this question, I was curious, Josh Green, you're a baller in the wine business. I wouldn't say baller, but you're in the wine business. You get to taste a lot. What was the most expensive rare wine you ever tasted? I don't give a crap about that anymore. What I care is the answer to this, if it's the same as the last time. What's that wine that had an impact on you, an effect that was a gateway that, you know, opened up. It could have been four years ago. It could have been, you know, when you were getting in the business. Is there a wine or two that? Well, I don't like to answer this question, but the wine that comes to mind is an 1830 Bollinger Champagne. Where, where, where'd that happen? At Bollinger. Okay. They, they were doing their... Um, they had found this cache of wines behind a fake door, a fake wall in their cellar that were hidden from the Nazis in World War II. And um, they just stumbled on it. Were they, they and they were, it was- Bubbles, some freshness? Some fruit? freshness, yeah. It, it had like a, a moment of freshness. And, you know, when it went from being- Oxidated? It went from being very mature, let's say, to- it, it crested really fresh and incredibly beautiful, and then it crashed. But it had this, like, it had probably 10, 15 minutes of fame. Well, that, and, and 1831, and, 15 and, minutes of fame is a big and deal. it was really spectacularly beautiful. That That's a great answer, because how many people get an opportunity? I never have had an opportunity to taste an old champagne like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a really super old champagne. I've had old champagne, but not that super old. <laughs> When you say you've had old champagnes, besides this, anything from the 1800s? Mm, I don't think Probably so. Probably not. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I've had he, wines from the 1800s, but I don't think any champagne. Wine's yeah. different. Um, I got to look back. I think you may have brought this up, but I, I'm not sure. We'll check that. All right. Last question, and you should be as good as anybody because this is your business to answer this. Recommend to me best wine retail, 15 20, 22 bucks. I always say my kids are in their late 20s. They can't show up at a dinner or a gift, you know, with supermarket wines, but they also can't spend 40, 50 bucks. So how do you wow at that high teens, low 20 rate? Um, I would go to two of my favorite places for Portugal? wine, which are Portugal and Chile. Okay. Um, so let's talk specifically. Let's, let's talk each place, a white and a red. Um. Or I, get me a white and a red between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd rather give you categories because- Fine, um, fine, fine, fine. For, I would go red Dow, and you can get- The Dow region. Yeah, you can get red Dow for between, you can get drinkable red Dow for $7. Really? Yeah. And you can get amazing red Dow for $22. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, there's there's some there's some sketchy wine everywhere, but if you if you check it out, 
And it's just, you know, you're not going to find good red wine for $7 for most places. So I always say this. If you have a good retailer in your neighborhood that you like or trust, mm-hmm. you like a scent, and you go on and say, I listen to the Grape Nation and Josh Green said the Dow is offering grape. What do you got? Mm-hmm. I mean, chances yeah. are that guy's going to curate a couple of nice Yeah, and he's right? not going to sell you or she's not going to sell you something that's right. bad because they want you to come back. Okay. So- all right, what about a white wine? Um, I always go to Vigneault Verde, and um, some people like Vigneault Verde, some people don't. I that, love Vigneault Verde. That's the north of Portugal? It's the north of Portugal. It's very coastal. It's, um, it's you know, you can get Alvarinho from the far north by along the Minho River with, with border with Spain, um, and you can get fresher, bright, sometimes fit, sweet and fizzy, but sometimes dry and complex wines from all the river valleys that run from that northern Minho to um, Porto, basically. Um, a little bit south of Porto, but mainly it's that northern part of Portugal along the coast. And they're great for, what I love about Vigneault Verde is that you can buy good Vigneault Verde for 10 bucks, great Vigneault Verde for 12 to 18 bucks. It's <laughs> crazy. And you can just open a really fresh, easy bottle of wine, low alcohol, and sip it while you're cooking with it. You know, just like it, I, I love to just, I'll, I'll make mussels or something and just be drinking the Vigneault Verde and, and pouring it into the pot with the mussels. And so let's, it's just, you don't worry about it. Let's dispel <laughs> something, a, a great and easy wine to drink in the summer. Mm-hmm. But, but you can also but like you it. said, you're home making a pot of mussels. Yeah. You could do red mussels or white mussels. You do white mussels. Mm-hmm. That's a hearty dish, you mm-hmm. know, in the middle of the winter type mm-hmm. thing with toasted bread and yeah. all that. So Vigno Verde, that, that's a good one. Um, I think you said that last time. Probably, I think but that's that, what I drink. For, I think for inexpensive wine, that's what I drink. I, yeah. I, I think it's that good. Better than Muscadet? I love Muscadet. Um, another great value. It's another great value. And there are amazing wines in Muscadet. I, um, I associate both regions as far Atlantic coast wines. Right. Um, and yeah, I think that they they do the same thing. I think Muscadet is maybe a little drier. It doesn't have a fizzy, you know, you can't, you're not finding fizzy Muscadets around. Um, but- The acidity, is that the fizzy or no? No, in, in the, um, there's car, there's there's um, some, often some carbonation in the really cheap Vigneault Verdes. Right. Um, but they're like $6 a bottle. Things yeah, like that. you don't want to go near that. Well, you might. I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. But they're, but they're, they're more like soda. You know, they're more like soda. So, yeah. yeah. But that, that's not what all Vigneault Verde is like. So. No. Um, but you're right. Muscadet is a good is a good um, oh, partner to that. As a category, yeah. yeah. Is there more salinity in Muscadet or not necessarily? As a descriptor? Um, it would depend on the, on the wine. All right. So but, you can't yeah. categorize or generalize. Okay. All right. So as I mentioned, we're going to post that. You know, I look at you as the expert, so I see an opportunity not to let you leave here without, you know, pointing me towards a few wines. Mm -hmm. Um, So we post it on our social media. Um, Let me do a quick wrap up and I want to get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Um, if you like the podcast, leave a positive review um, and subscribe. 
you know, if you like this show, instead of looking for it every week, subscribe and it'll pop up. You can follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and on Twitter at BenRuby. I know that's confusing, but that's the way we do it. But you can always get to us through our hashtag, The Grape Nation. Um, we're on Facebook at The Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Josh's wine list answers and I will post all the wines. That's why before I leave, I got to take bottle shots. Um, and like I said, I'll put it on all our uh, social media sites. Um, Josh, if we want to get more information on getting more information, where do we go to find more about Wine and Spirits magazine? What are the opportunities available to us? You go to the website and you can sign up for our e-newsletter at wineandspiritsmagazine.com. And is spelled out. And is spelled out. Wine is singular and is spelled out. Spirit is plural and magazine is all spelled out. Dot com. So we have an e-newsletter that we blast out when we've... Is that a free thing? That's a free thing. You okay. just have to register for it. So at and the then, very minimum, you could get yeah. info and be in contact mm -hmm. by signing yeah. up for and, that. And that's that's almost every week now. We're sending out best buys that we found in our most recent tastings as we post the results of those tastings um, for subscribers. But the, um, the e-newsletter is free. Um, you can subscribe digitally, and then you can just subscribe for digital and print. The print is quarterly. Okay. Um, we also have an event coming up in um, at the Metropolitan Pavilion on February 15th for our top 100. It's coming up soon. Yep. Well, not so soon, but soon enough. Yeah, February 15th. You're in um, denial. It's coming up soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're already planning it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, last year, you didn't do it at Metropolitan. You did it somewhere else, I remember. Um, we had a venue off of Fifth Avenue in the, in the low 20s. Yeah, same and they, neighborhood. They, they don't, they're not there anymore. Anything for this year's top 100 different than the past? More people? Different. different well, um, it's a different group of wineries. Okay. And um, some some are the same from year to year because they always perform really well, but others are new. Um, and we are a little less restrictive on our admission this year, so we'll, we'll probably have a bigger turnout. Um, last year we were keeping it pretty strict and even that it was a by your crowded. choosing yeah so you're going to open it up yeah so it's consumer and trade i mean yeah. the trade will come but the consumer mm -hmm. um and all the places you told us to go will help us know when and where yes. the yes. specifics on that come um there's the possibility when you come back that there may be a blah frankish producer there mm -hmm. you think <laughs> Oh, um, well, in the top one, there's, there are, there are Blau Frankish producers okay. in the top 100. Yeah. Okay. So I thought maybe, you know, you'd add somebody in. All right. So what was that? Wine and Spirits? Wine and Spirits Magazine.com. Okay. Yep. Um, on social media. All right. I want to thank our guest, Josh Green, once again, uh, for sitting down with us to take a look back at the year in wine 2022. Um, just a little nostalgia. I think it was seven or eight years ago, Josh and I were at a Laura Catena uh, dinner tasting at that food and wine facility or something. <laughs> um, and I had just launched the podcast in September. And I think that was a little later in the year, maybe late November, December. I mean, no, I, I had done a podcast on Sirius with Gary Vaynerchuk, but nobody really <laughs> knew what was going on. And I, Laura introduced me to you mm -hmm. and I said, I'm doing this podcast and will you come on? And without even flinching, sure. 
you know, here's my card and I got in touch with you and we set it up. And what's a beautiful thing is this is our seventh year. So it's always nice to see your face. And I thank you for being here. It's always fun to do it. I really enjoy it, Sam. Yep, I do. It's something I look forward to. Um, So thank you to our guest, Josh Green from Wine and Spirits Magazine. Thanks to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.